Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue 11 of our Comics Bracket. This week, we'll be discussing 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, as well as 2015's The Peanuts Movie. I'm not going to lie, it's a little weird that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wound up on the big screen before Peanuts did. Peanuts doesn't need to be a big screen movie. Nothing about it screams the cinema. It's these really small stories about really small people having sweet, innocent adventures that don't need to be projected huge. They, They can be small and contained. I mean, they're Peanuts. That's true. I think... The Peanuts movie is actually kind of an encapsulation of where cinema has gone and kind of how much cinema is trying to access the nostalgia of its audience. Mm, Yeah, I can see that. But before we get into all of that, let's go ahead and talk Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Sure. A little bit of franchise history before we start. I am going to limit myself specifically to television and film because if I mentioned all of the comics and all of the toy lines and all of the video games, we would be here all night. Yeah, I feel like people have heard of this one, haven't they? (laughs) Yes, they have. (laughs) Um... So, 1984, the original comic by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird is produced under their Mirage Studios publishing company. The reason they went with Mirage Studios is because the company didn't really exist. It was just them. When they realized people really like this Turtles comic that we produced, then they started having to hire more people on and actually became a functioning company. Not soon after the comic began to gain some success, Uh, Mark Friedman seeks out the creators for licensing opportunities. One of the first ones is a partnership with Dark Horse Miniatures, and that also eventually ties into a role-playing game based off of Palladium rule sets. Some of you might be familiar with Rifts. Oh, man. Yeah, there is a book from the mid-80s called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness. Might try to See if I can get a copy of that from the local game store. (laughs) They hit it big in 97 when another licensing deal partners them with Playmates Toys, which not only brings a toy line, but because this is the mid-80s, all toy lines need to have a cartoon show to go with them, and we get the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles animated series. Oh yeah, I remember watching a little bit of that and they're going, Welp, nope! And look at this rope. This can only be the work of ninjas, the ancient band of Japanese warriors. And how can you tell that from the rope, Professor? Well, look for yourself. It's made in Japan. Again, it was the mid-80s. It was a glorified toy commercial. But this did run for 10 seasons and had 193 episodes. Wow. It was successful enough that it pretty much created its own subgenre. I mean, if you take a look at like Road Rovers, Cowboys of Moo Mesa, Street Sharks, Biker Mike's from Mars, they're all just curbing on TMNT. Man, when's the Michael Bay Street Sharks movie coming out? The Search for Roxy. Oh no. Then in 1990, we the live action film, which we'll be talking about today. God, I love being a it's actually interesting because for a long while it was the highest grossing independent film of all time. They shopped around to a number of major studios but couldn't find a distributor because everyone's like, no, this is going to take exactly like Masters of the Universe did three years ago. Mm. We're going to pass. And eventually they wound up going with uh, New Line Cinema, which had been known for distributing kind of B-movie and direct-to-video stuff. This is before they would make that one movie with <laughs> Carl Urban and a few other people you've heard of. It did incredibly well financially. Not the most amount of critical success, but this is early 90s. Comic book movies weren't really a 
thing yet. We had the Superman films and a couple Batman films. And honestly, I wouldn't even put this into the space of comic book films in terms of how I would think about the marketing. It honestly feels more like a pulpy action or pulpy sci-fi fantasy thing. Yeah. Anyway, it did well enough that a sequel was released next year, 1991, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze. It did not do as well as the first film, but did reasonably well. Then in 1993, we get a additional sequel, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. This one involves time travel back to feudal Japan. I think I swallowed a frog. I hope it wasn't an ancestor. While it did make back twice its production budget, it was still only half of the second film and a fifth of the first. So like... Eh, we're gonna call it quits here. Then in 1996, the original animated series ends its run, but there's a Japanese OVA series that roughly translates to Mutant Turtles Superman Legend. Awesome. <laughs> it is released and it consists of two episodes. Yeah, that's a trip. If you wanted more anime... <laughs> anime bullshit in your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, check that out. I think I always want that. Heads up though, it has never been officially released in English, but you can definitely find fan subs out there. Then in 1997, we get Ninja Turtles The Next Mutation, which is a live action television show developed by Saban Entertainment. Yes, the same Saban that does Power Rangers. In fact, this show crossed over with Power Rangers in space for a couple episodes. Awesome. So the Mutant Ninja Turtles are for real? Yeah. <laughs> hey, we couldn't believe they were really Power Rangers either. Pretty trippy. It, however, was terrible and canceled after a single 28-episode season. Yeah. Then something kind of interesting happens. The animated series is gone. There's no more live-action films. The Archie comic series that was going on the time has finished up, and the original comics that was being published by Image Comics at the time only goes till, uh, for another couple of years into 1990. From about 1997 until 2003, the Turtles are pretty much nowhere to be seen. Yeah, they're ninjas. <laughs> well, like, after this huge boom where the Turtles were everywhere, like, they had concert tours and they were used for marketing all sorts of things and had a very successful television show and toy line and film series, they just kind of fall by the wayside. Until 2003, when a new animated series, unfortunately also called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, premieres. Nobody messes with the purple dragons. Especially wearing stupid turtle costumes. He's wrong. We're not wearing costumes. This is a little bit darker. He's a little bit closer to the source material, and it's highly acclaimed for various reasons. It runs for seven seasons and 156 episodes, so almost as long as the original. Due to the increased interest in the Turtles, in 2007, a 3D animated film, TMNT, releases, and it's loosely in continuity with the live-action trilogy of films, and it takes place a number of years in the future. Well, you always did run with a strange crowd, April. Yeah, well, our strange crowd hasn't been the same without you. The turtles have grown apart and it's all them coming back together to deal with the threat to New York. Then in 2009, the O3 series finishes with a made-for-TV film called Turtles Forever, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the franchise and having the incarnations of the turtles from the original comic as well as the 87 series cross over with the 2003 series. So into the Turtleverse? Yes. Awesome. Nearly 10, <laughs> 10 years before into the Spider-Verse, we had Turtles Forever. I strike two on my way down. Donatello takes out a third with his staff. Ah, no, no. 
narrating. Is he crazy? Hardcore crazy. I love these guys! And then later in that same year, Nickelodeon acquires the property. Another few years pass, and we get a third series oh, Jesus. titled Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This time 3D animated, and it runs for five series with 124 episodes. Then, 2014, we get a live-action reboot, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. While it's a box office success, it is widely critically panned. Oh, she's so hot, I can feel my shell tightening. This is the one that was produced by Michael Bay's production company. Two years later, there is a sequel to said film, titled Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Out of the Shadows. You guys don't really want to do this again, right? Doesn't usually work out well for you guys. You know, I have the four friends, green. And it marginally improves its critical success over its predecessor, but halves its box office. Then in 2018, a new animated series, Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, premieres. And it currently consists of one 26-episode season and has been renewed for another. If you step to my friends for stepping to you, for stepping to me, you gonna have to step to me. Okay. <gasps> There's also rumors and discussions that another reboot of the live-action franchise is coming. Oh. There's not much concrete information on it, though. There's a late 2019 production start is what they're going for, but there's no announced director yet. Additionally, they've also announced that a film based off of the Rise animated television series is also in development. We'll see if slash when that happens. Hmm. That is the film and television history of the Turtles franchise. How far are we into the episode? 14 minutes. Cheese and crust. <laughs> That's a lot. We'll probably cut that down. Okay, so time to speed run through our comments on the movie. Let's go hard with this. Who's a better mentor, Splinter or Yoda? <sighs> Splinter. State your reasoning. Well, unfortunately, Yoda's held back by some of the shitty parts of the Jedi Code about emotions and feeling. Splinter actually deeply cares for his sons and loves them and lets them know that and does a good job of letting them work through their own emotions. He doesn't chastise Raphael for his anger. He's just like, this is something I know that you're going through. If you need help, we're here. Your brothers are here. Do not forget them. And do not forget me. So towards the start, Raph and Donnie start having a small argument that escalates to like light blows, and Splinter doesn't immediately jump in. He watches to see what they're gonna do and lets them resolve it on their own, which I think is a relatively healthy mentoral approach. He wants to see if they can handle this small conflict on their own, because that'll be important down the line when he's not there. I also really want to comment on how great the opening sequence is for just setting everything up. Establishes what New York is like in this film, partially because it's a fictionalized New York but also partially it's based off of some of the real crime wave fears that were going on in the late 80s. And it does a good job of setting that up, setting up the foot. We get introduced to Danny, although we don't even know his name yet. We see him just off enough to have him in our mind, so when he shows up in April's apartment later, we're like, oh, it's that guy. Yeah, and it also gives a really good introduction to April O'Neil, her concerns for the city, her style of reporting and investigative journalism, and it's beautifully shot. There's a part that I really like, and I can't tell if it's intentional or not, where they save it. Police have yet to come up with a single eyewitness. Right as a woman sees a thief jump out onto her fire escape and steal her TV, and she watches him run away, and she gets a pretty good view. But she's a black woman, and I'm wondering if it's subtly commenting on how a lot of establishments don't 
listen to black communities when they report on stuff or that would just they just happen to cast a black woman for that scene film is reasonably good about some incidental black people new york still feels very very white though yeah um and i am glad that there weren't too many incidental black people in amongst the like foot clan right because eh. yeah. although there are some other points where um film is not the best with race we talked about the Sony thing. We've been waiting for you, Miss O'Neill. What? Am I behind on my Sony payments again? <laughs> yeah, we talked about the Sony thing last time, but what did not come up is when the turtles get back to New York after visiting the farmhouse, the turtles are all in the back of a pickup hiding, and after they get out, Raph comments, now I know what it's like to travel without a green card? Yikes. Yeah, it's just not great. It's comedy, and comedy ages incredibly quickly, and in this case, it has not aged very well. No. I will mitigate that by saying that this is Raphael empathizing with an oppressed group, empathizing with someone who isn't him, which in terms of development is probably a good thing. Raphael is someone who seems to have a lot of centering on his needs and his emotions, and him doing empathy is good growth. I just wish they'd expressed that growth in a better way. Mm -hmm. One interesting thing I noticed about the foot this watch through is how very anti-capitalist the, the worldview is for the foot and the shredder. During his introductory scene when he's bestowing the headband to a newly ascended foot clan member, he talks about how money cannot buy the honor which you have earned tonight. And goes on to comment about loyalty and uh, trust and talks about how it's a family and it's really interesting for the villain here to be portrayed as very anti-capitalist i mean it kind of makes sense we're just getting out of the reagan era and turtles as a franchise are heavily commercialized it's this weird thing like i can appreciate the foot clan for that but i'm sure at the time that is not what they were necessarily going for i'd also argue that it's a little more complicated than that too sure they're anti-capitalist but not in like a socialist way in a feudal way the shredder is very much modeled after traditional feudal samurai like it's not an ambiguous thing splinter even talks about how he, he poisons your minds to obtain that which he desires and sure, he's not necessarily after money, but he's after work. He's after getting labor from these kids for free. If it is anti-capitalism, it's a very regressive anti-capitalism as opposed to finding solutions to get out of capitalism. Yeah, and we also see that they are very often stealing from the disenfranchised minority populations. We saw the black woman at the beginning, blue-collar workers, they steal everything out of a delivery driver's truck. Mm -hmm. April comments about doing interviews in Little Tokyo and and how much their livelihoods have been affected by the foot and how it's reminiscent of this other thing that happened back in Japan. And I can't tell how much the film is like aware of the Shredder's hypocrisy. I don't think we're supposed to like agree with him about that per se. Mm -hmm. But also I don't know if the film means to be commenting on how anti-capitalist rhetoric can also be used as a tool for oppression in and of itself. If you're disenfranchised by society, whether because you're like an outcast or a street kid or a turtle living in the sewers or whatnot, there is an amount of money that you do actually want to survive and be able to experience happiness and not be constantly in economic turmoil. And I think it's interesting that the Shredder probably can't see that because he's at the top of this hierarchy that these kids, some of them probably don't have homes to go back to. Some of them can't 
can't do the Danny thing and just go back to their dad who owns a TV network. They might not have anywhere else to go, so this money might be really important to them. They've also done studies. Money actually can buy happiness up to a certain point, and then the diminishing returns are so much that beyond that, you can't become happier by having more money. And also that number's going to fluctuate based on inflation and your region and all that jazz. Exactly. But there is a number you can figure out without a super lot of work. And no one in this movie, apart from the Shredder and his secret pajamas, have that. I very much doubt that they were thinking that much about everything. Sure. I don't think class consciousness was anywhere close to being able to unpack all of that in 1990 compared to here in 2019. That said, let's compare it to how the Splinter interacts with money and the turtles and he kind of doesn't he's fine with them having tvs and furniture and pizzas where do they get money i'm not gonna call it like a plot hole movie ruin or anything but that is like a question i'm always gonna wonder about is what's their financial model like like your laundry and all these boards and everybody's breaking who pays for that stuff i'm sure plenty of money gets washed away via the rain into the sewer system. I would guess that a lot of what they have down there has been thrown away. They've kind of scavenged it. The furniture that they have does not look to be in the best shape. Neither does the television. Right. It's not like they have like designer stuff. Yeah. And it's not like they have a cable subscription. They probably watch April O'Neil and think of her as a celebrity because they only get the local channels. One last thing I want to talk about with Shredder. It's very interesting that the conflict between Oroku Saki and Splinter's master Yoshi is over a woman. They competed in all things, but none more fiercely than for the love of a woman. Which, canon to the comics. Canon to the comics, and it was 30 years ago, so it was less cliched then, but it just sure seems like a very, like, interesting, complicated villain. Like, We don't really get a whole lot of insight into exactly why he started the Foot Clan here, like why he wants to accumulate this power. The thing that bringing him to America was that the woman he was pining after chose not him. Feels like it cheapens that character of Shredder quite a bit. Although also, I don't know what else happened in his life. I'm not sure if the link is exactly, she chose someone else, ah, I will admit America, or if there's stuff between those two things. Uh, I guess we also don't quite know exactly Exactly how much time has passed since then. I mean, if we're going by the turtles being teenage and human years as opposed to whatever turtle years are, then we can roughly think about probably 15 years or so since Splinter wound up in the sewers after the attack and when the film takes place. So 15 years, I guess, is quite a bit of time for Shredder to mature. And for his economic pursuits to expand across the sea. I think another thing that cheapens the Shredder is that he doesn't really matter to the turtles. He shows up in the final fight and they're like, Does anybody have any idea about who or what this is? Sure, their conflict is part of an ongoing thing, this secret battle between these people, but they don't really know why they're involved in that. I'm pretty sure they know the story of how Splinter learned martial arts and all that jazz, mm-hmm. but they don't really make the connection to who he is until probably the end, where they've already been fighting him. That's really a thing. The Shredder is villains with the Turtles because they're thwarting his plans, and the Turtles don't really view the Shredder as antagonist because they don't know who he is, and his personal connection lies with 
Splinter, not with the turtles themselves. Right. The turtles don't really seem to have any particular cohesive goal they're moving towards. And what little there is, I'd say, kind of in the region of being accepted and part of society, um, mm-hmm. being you know out of the shadows and all yeah. that jazz, the Shredder isn't really in the way of that. Uh, well... I mean, he's he's preying on the marginalized, and you could argue that the turtles are probably one of the most marginalized populations in the city. Sure. Turtles can't vote. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still cut off from other marginalized communities. They're not, like, part mm-hmm. of, say, Little Tokyo or whomever. Yeah. So it's not like they're the patrons of the, their community rising up. They just happen to be caught in this. Mm-hmm complicated this whole mess it's that there are two groups of ninjas fighting each other and ninjas are all about stealth and secrecy and hiding themselves from the view of the masses Mm -hmm. so it makes a lot of sense why most of the conflict is so clandestine thinking of this less as like a superhero narrative and more like a cold war spy narrative makes a lot more sense in that regard for how all that plays out. Speaking of narrative inspiration, this movie's very clearly taken some inspiration from Star Wars. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But a lot of Star Wars is inspired by by Japanese films. Like Kurosawa. Yeah. There's a lot of cross-pollination happening there. It borrows some Star Wars, but it borrows the best parts and it uses them incredibly well. (laughs) If you're going to crib, crib well. Mm-hmm. At one point, the splinter shows up to the four of them in a, this ghostly blue spirit form and like talks about the force that binds them together. Exactly like Star Wars? I am tickled by the fact that we are adding in a clip from Master of Disguise and it's not Am I Turtly Enough for the Turtle Club. Oh wow, it's surprising me that we haven't thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> so, tell me about Peanuts and the history of the franchise. Okay, so... It started in 1947. A guy named Howard Schultz is writing The Little Ends, and it's kind of a precursor to Peanuts. Charlie Brown shows up as a name, but not as a character yet. Eventually mutates into the Peanuts we know today and gets named Peanuts, and runs from 1950 to 2000 with 17,897 strips. Wow. Yeah. All drawn and written by Howard Schultz. Charles Schultz. Charles Schultz. Thank you. I don't know where Howard from. He decided to retire and wrote his last strips, and the day before the last one was published, he passed away. And it worked out really well, because the last strip was a Sunday comic that was a sort of farewell to his readers and a thank you to them all, so it wound up being very touching and heartwarming. There were a lot of adaptions. Because so many of the characters are very archetypal and color-based, and there's not like a continuity to follow, it's just kids in a neighborhood doing stuff. It's really easy to make stories and many mediums about them. So we've got five films, 45 TV specials, three TV shows, so many video games I wrote down. I apparently didn't count them. That's fine. One of them being Snoopy versus the Red Baron, where Snoopy sets out on his plane to kill the Red Baron, a real person who lived in the real world. That's fine. It's fine. (laughs) The children help him. They're also part of the military. Yeah. Um, A lot of the TV specials people have seen. There's the Charlie Brown Christmas... I never thought it was such a bad little tree. It's not bad at all, really. Maybe it just needs a little love. It's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, etc. You heard about fury and a woman scorned, haven't you? Yes, I guess I have. Well, that's nothing compared to the fury of a woman who has been cheated out of tricks or treats. The one that I think is most important to understanding the Peanuts movie we're talking about today came out in 67, and it's You're in Love, Charlie Brown. And it's more or less the same story. Charlie Brown sees the little red-haired girl, is smitten, and tries to do impressive things to win her affections, and largely fails. But at the end, she decides, eh, he'll do. And 
And settles. And settles. <laughs> like, yeah, I wouldn't kick him out of bed. Um, a way which is more successful is that it takes place over about two days. I'll probably talk about with the Peanuts movie is that it's weird that Charlie Brown doesn't learn this character's name despite her being in his class for the entire time. At least three months. A solid semester. Yeah. It helps that it happens over a few days so there's not really time to actually meet and interact with her. So his smittenness makes sense. It's not like a creepy stalker. It's a kid with his first crush. Admittedly, Charlie Brown is a less likable character in that movie. There's more entitlements going on. It's weird. Where it gets even weirder. Well, no. There's two ways it gets even weirder. Do you want the fun one or the narratively complicated one? Let's go with the narratively complicated one and then the fun one to palate cleanse. Sure. The narratively complicated one is she writes him a letter that says, I like you, Charlie Brown. Sign, little red-haired girl. <sighs> this character has gotten a name in some incarnation. She's been given the name Heather. But apparently, in some narratives, that's just how she identifies as. That's her Twitter handle. She got that branding on lockdown. What's going to happen if Sherry gets big? We don't know. Big red-haired girl is my favorite Julia Murphy book. Um, so yeah, it's very weird that that just keeps being this running theme of her not getting a name. The fun part is at one point, Charlie Brown tries to enlist Peppermint Patty's help to set up a date with this person. She gets the wrong idea, thinks that he's talking about Lucy. Lucy thinks that the date is with Schroeder. It's a whole thing. But Patty specifically says, She won't give you a tumble, eh? I'll handle this. Which raises additional questions. These children are in elementary school. <laughs> I guess she could be talking about like actual wrestling. That definitely seems like right. that definitely seems like the way that Peppermint Patty lets people know that she has a crush on them. God. Okay, yeah, now, now it's more innocent again. <laughs> it's Lucy. I can imagine how she'd be like, oh yeah, I'm sure Lucy wants to fight you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's the research I did. I, I spent some time watching a Let's Play of Snoopy vs. the Red Baron. And so <laughs> of course you did. I was doing other research, but then I got kind of sucked into that. And I was like, wow, this is all happening. Wow, they're trying to kill a man. <laughs> Rather than overanalyzing the entire oeuvre of Peanuts, let's focus on the Peanuts movie. Sure. Having seen Your Love, Charlie Brown, I'm realizing that if this had been a Lucy, Heather, Charlie love triangle, it could have been a stronger narrative. I could definitely see that, especially with how much focus Lucy gets during the portion of the film where everyone's fawning over Charlie Brown's intellect and how she's kind of resistant and then finally gives in and starts seeing the ways like, yeah, maybe Charlie Brown is smarter and wiser than we give him credit for. Maybe you're not the worst thing ever. And then that's all capped off by her shouting, I knew it! When Charlie admits that this is not my test. However, she does it while wearing a Charlie Brown shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I'll admit the part of my reasoning for thinking that is that Lucy is a very interesting character and I kind of wish she had more to do in the plot than exists as a sounding board for Charlie and to react to things he does. I think in general that's a problem with the film is for being a Peanuts film, a lot of it is just focused on Charlie Brown and Snoopy, and we really don't get a whole lot from everybody else. They're there, but rarely to do more than just provide comedy and fill out spaces. Provide comedy, fill out spaces, or on occasion they, like, point Charlie Brown in the direction of the plot. If they cut down on some of the superfluousness of the Snoopy scenes and focused on some other sort of subplot with the rest of the kids, maybe some sports thing going on, or even if you wanted to get into some of the other crushes and love interests going on, that would have helped with that. We kind of get the budding love story between Patty and Pigpen, but that's about it. 
Right. Um, I think it also help if you mentioned cutting down on the Snoopy sequences. We also get four or five different little vignettes of Charlie Brown doing things. You could have just done two or three, and then use the you know vignette space for other plot things. Yeah. Um... And admittedly, that is very consistent with a lot of Peanuts content, where it's one D four plus two vignettes arranged together to be a package deal. Which yeah. fair enough, but. You know, this is a theatrical movie. We can tell a whole story now. I think if you were going to cut some of the Charlie Brown montages, I think we could probably cut down the... I'm not sure how I feel about cutting the magic act since we don't actually see him perform at all. I kind of want to have that there. Mm-hmm. But in the end, like he doesn't ever actually perform, so it doesn't really matter how good he is. But it does give us a very heartwarming scene where he chooses to forsake his own fame and be there for his sister. That's a really good scene. It's a very public scene. It's something that the little red-haired girl sees and comments on specifically. Yeah. I think that's it. Like, that scene works really well for Charlie Brown as a character. Oh, yeah. like All the talent show stuff is fine. I'm just like him training to for the magic. But I, mm-hmm. now that you're saying it, I do think that him training for the magic act and being incredibly good at it and having a lot of confidence in himself for it does enrich the decision he makes to forego his act to help his little sister. Okay, so we keep the magic act. Learning dance, we can probably cut and just cut to the, the dance. Feeling. Yes. Um, <laughs> or... Or at least shorten the amount of time focused on teaching Charlie Brown to dance. Yeah. Or even just cut the whole dance thing entirely. I mean, I know that all movies about kids in schools are required to have a dance by law. Yeah. But we don't really need it. And sure, we learn a bit about the little red-haired girl, but her liking dance doesn't really come up in the rest of the story. And it, it's definitely the weakest at showing the good qualities of Charlie Brown. It's just, oh, he was brave and kind of funny. Yeah. The other kids get some good interactions in there, but those interactions could have been spread out through the rest of the plot. Yeah. Whereas I think the standardized test was good and well-written and worked for the plot, and the book report is also good. Yeah. And, yeah. I would probably cut down on the everyone getting Charlie Brown fever. I think I would cut down on that montage. Yeah, and cut maybe like two of the Snoopy bits. And then I think we have enough time for some other B-plot with Lucy or Linus or whoever. The movie makes sure that we have the Marcy-Patty relationship in the plot. It could have been really interesting to have parallel journeys where Charlie and Marcy both learn to kind of toughen up and confront a significant woman in their lives in different ways. But Marcy gaining confidence to be like, hey, Patty, you're using me kind of in a subservient role. I want to be equals in this friendship. Could have been really fun. I'm not even sure Marcy even feels that way, though, is the thing. Sure, but that could be an arc we could put in. Yeah, not to put too fine a point on it, but it really feels like there's a dom-sub thing going on between it those really two. It really is. It's incredibly <laughs> dom-subby. All of the stuff with them as an adult just feels really weird. And then the last sequence we haven't really talked about is the book report. There's a bit. They highlight the line, uh, Prince Andre Muse on the importance of greatness. And I'd love to get into a deep dive about what that line means, who Prince Andre is in the story and all that jazz. I'd love to, but... You started watching The Dragon Prince this weekend, and I decided to just watch that with you instead. Strong relationships need honesty. The full truth. (laughs) Oh, now you sound like my first three husbands. And I didn't read about War and Peace at all. So that's not happening. Oh, well. But I think that highlighting Prince Andre Meads and the importance of greatness could have been a really interesting point if Charlie Brown realized that greatness doesn't actually matter or it's not worth it or something. That could have been a fun plot thing. Mm -hmm. Have him have... The exact same arc as Doctor Strange. To be fair, that does mean that they're kind of 
having to either have this assumptions that kids are familiar with War and Peace or explain a portion of War and Peace to children, neither of which I think would have worked well. Listen, if you scrap all our ideas for how to change this movie, make it just Charlie Brown explains War and Peace to children for an hour and a half, I would watch the hell out of that. That sounds amazing. You do realize that even the film adaptation of that book is seven hours, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not saying... I'm not saying he should explain all of it. I'm saying him explaining a bit of it will be fun. Oh, speaking of the War and Peace thing, if you freeze frame through some of Charlie's notes, there are really great things like Russia equals cold, and Moscow is the capital of Russia. Yeah, as you get into his conspiracy board of, like, note cards and red string. We've talked at length about some of the major flaws of this film. There are some really good, well-written moments. Towards the beginning of the film, when the little red-haired girl is just moving in, Peppermint and Patty makes a comment about hoping the new kid is a better goalie than Marcy. And then we cut to behind the fence, see that Peppermint Patty is standing on top of Marcy, and Marcy commenting, You're hurting me, sir. And I just love the double meaning that that uh, delivery allows. It's also every time I see Lucy's psychiatric help five cents, I'm like, oh, look, affordable mental health care. <laughs> Another thing I like about this movie is that it's very energetic. Even the parts where I'm like, you could probably cut this and do something else with it. It's not that that sequence is bad per se, it's just that it doesn't serve the greater narrative function. It's a very high energy thing that doesn't feel exhausting with its high energiness. Mm-hmm. As much as we rag on the Snoopy Red Baron bits, they're wonderfully animated. They're a lot of fun. I'm sure kids have lots of fun with those scenes. It just is kind of this plot cul-de-sac. And even non-dream sequence stuff, like towards the start of the film when Snoopy gathers all the kids together for, for, to go ice skating and they just kind of bunch up and bunch up and it's this heightening of energy as they're all getting involved in it until they all like spin away and it's a good build up and release of tension even though the tension is just um the fun of watching some people ice skate mm-hmm. unfortunately all the high energy just means we don't really get into slower contemplative bits with some of the characters like mm-hmm. there's a bit where someone tells charlie brown and i have time to other people like you and they're right charlie brown is very clearly very down on himself beyond a reasonable amount and this one could have taking some time to explore depression in a context that kids will understand. And that could have been really interesting, but we don't really unpack it that far. We never give that lack of self-confidence breathing room and really unpack where it comes from and how to deal with it. The film's just like, oh, Charlie Brown, you need to be more confident in yourself. And here, do a bunch of hobbies. Yeah. I mean, it could be because he lives with his sister, who's better than him in every way, and that must be depressing for him. But <laughs> In this day and age, I think it's really important to give kids the social technology to kind of unpack depression and self-depreciating thoughts. And yeah, this was a good opportunity missed. Speaking about Charlie Brown's internal state, one thing I notice in this film is that it really leans into the idea that Snoopy is kind of this idealized self for Charlie Brown. Mm, Yeah. I think a big part of that is the very first Snoopy and the Red Baron scene is Snoopy dealing with a love interest that he has to woo and all that sort of stuff. And it really feels like Snoopy is trying to unpack how to best help Charlie Brown. And in an ideal world, what would that look like? And, you know, at the end, he does get the girl and he saves the day and all that stuff. And Snoopy is also constantly helping Charlie Brown, whether it's with the magic act. 
teaching him how to dance. To a certain extent, he even upstages him at the dance competition. I don't know, it's just kind of this weird thing that Peanuts Media does where Snoopy is this sort of omni-capable individual and juxtaposed next to Charlie Brown really feels like some of it is Charlie Brown projecting that omni-competency onto Snoopy. And Snoopy's kind of a bit inconsistent with his characterization. Sometimes he's here to help Charlie Brown, sometimes he's kind of pranking on him, sometimes he creates bigger problems for him, like eating all the cupcakes. Mm. And I'm fine with the character being very mercurial and trickstery. That's totally fine. But Charlie Brown doesn't seem to learn from any of the tricksteriness, nor does he ever comment on Snoopy causing him problems. That's about all I got for Peanuts. Same. I think it's probably time to move into our vote. Yeah. I mean, I think it means to Ninja Nurdles is for me. <laughs> Same, except I pronounce it correctly. <laughs> We've talked at length about the huge, huge holes with Charlie Brown and the little red-haired girl not having a name in our previous episode. And we talked a little bit more about some of the less intense weaknesses this time. As much as I like the film, those flaws are really, really glaring, and they are much, much bigger than the flaws of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's not even a nostalgia vote. It's just Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is an incredibly well-constructed film. There's a lot more I want to unpack in uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that I can't say for the Peanuts movie. It's it's fine, but it's very... It's like eating peanuts. Um, they're, it's tasty, but not all that filling. Mm-hmm. What do we have coming up next week? Oh, right, next week. We have The Crow versus Watchmen. We do. Welcome back to the Trigger Zone. Yep, we're at least going to be removing one of them. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Am I not turtly enough for the turtle club?